This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Everybody, this is Bob Murphy. It's a beautiful day for me. My Bob Murphy imitation sucks. I apologize. I thought it was a lot better when I was 15 or 16 years old and I was battling puberty. But now as a 40 plus year old man, my Bob Murphy imitation sucks. Anyhow, welcome to Rico Bronia. Hopefully everybody has had a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful holiday and Santa gave you exactly what you wanted. A while back, we received an email at therecob at gmail.com and we get a lot of these of ideas, like ideas of, hey, I got an idea for Rico Bronia. Hey, I have an idea for Rico Bronia because usually I'd say 80% of the time we're talking about the team. We're talking about, in this case, the offseason. During the season, we're talking about games and series and what happens. But during the offseason, at times, we have some fun. We go through memory lane. We go through Met history and have nice little chats about the history of this franchise. So we always get recommendations. You should do a Rico Bronia about this. You should do a Rico Bronia about that. And a while back, we received an email with a suggestion. And it was an interesting suggestion. It was, hey, you should go back in the history of the New York Mets and talk about one-hit wonders. In fact, the person who emailed me was a guy by the name of Patrick Stern. And so I wrote him back and said, I think that's such a great idea that when we do this podcast, we'll call it Rico Bronia, Patrick Stern presents Mets One-Hit Wonders. So Patrick, if you're out there, and boy, wouldn't it suck if you suggested such a creative idea and then you didn't actually listen to the podcast happening. Uh, but he is. I'm sure he is. Or maybe I screwed up his name. It's possible after all these months, it's not actually Patrick Stern. But Patrick Stern presents Mets One Hit Wonders. couple of rules before we go through the history of these kinds of guys. When we say one-hit wonder, we don't mean a guy that had one really good year for the New York Mets and then faded away. We've had a lot of those guys. It's literally guys who played for one year or shorter on the New York Mets. They were here for an instant, and then they were gone. And that's the qualification, because there are two guys that jumped out at me as guys that technically were not one-hit wonders. They were here for more than one year. But it was brief enough where we only remember the one year that they had here. May I give you an example of that? So clearly this doesn't count because the guy was here for multiple years. But you'll see by the example, he almost counted. Uh, Number one is Hall of Famer Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson in 1999 is the year we remember. And he had a great year in 1999. He played 121 games that season. He hit 315. Ricky Henderson hit 315. And if I'm not mistaken, if you look through Ricky Henderson's major league career, that was one of the highest batting average seasons he had ever had in his Hall of Fame career. Think about that. In fact, if you look it up, he only had two other seasons in which he hit higher than 315. And that was back in 1981 as a 22-year-old when he hit 319. And back in 1990, when he won the MVP, and he hit 325. So Ricky Henderson hit 315 for the New York Mets. He also stole 37 bases, hit 12 home runs, and had an 889 OPS. He also contributed big time in that 1999 playing game in Cincinnati against the Reds, setting the tone for that game and performing in the postseason. The problem was, in the postseason, we more remember him for playing cards with Bobby Bonilla during game six of the NLCS. Now, you may say, well, why doesn't he count? He actually came back the following year in 2000 and played for the Mets. The problem was 
2000 was a disaster. And he ended up getting DFA'd about a month and a half into the season. So A, he wasn't performing. He was only hitting 219 and had no pop whatsoever. I think he only had three extra base hits in the time he was here. But I'll never forget it. It was a game in which he had a ball off the top of the fence in left field. And Ricky did his Ricky trot. And so he ended up sticking at first base. He never ended up getting the double that he needed. And Shea Stadium obviously erupted in booze. And within a few days of that, the Mets made the decision to move on from Ricky Henderson. And they DFA'd him. And it really turned out to be the right choice because he bounced around the league with Seattle, San Diego, Boston, and finally finishing in L.A., And he never came close to what he did in 1999. 1999, at age 41 years old, was really the last hurrah of Ricky Henderson. But if the Mets had moved on from Ricky, instead of those 30 games in 2000, he would qualify in this one-hit wonder. And the only reason I mention him is because it's not like he spent five more years with the Mets. He didn't even finish the next season. In fact, most Mets fans, when you think back, to the 2000 Mets, a team that went to the World Series, which is very special in all our hearts. Do you even remember that Ricky Henderson was on the team? I don't think anybody does because he was gone by the middle of May. So Ricky Henderson qualifies as a really, really close, but no cigar, one hit wonder. And I'll give you one other example that fits the Ricky Henderson quotation of so close, but so far away. And it's actually really, really similar. Jose Valentin. Remember Jose Valentin? He was a big part of that 2006 Met team. He had a really productive year that year in 2006. He had 271, which, yes, was the highest batting average of his entire major league career. He had 18 home runs. He drove in 62 runs, and he had an 820 OPS. Jose Valentin had a career season at age 36 as the predominant second baseman for the 2006 Mets. Unfortunately, I remember him mostly for the Andy Chavez game because after Andy Chavez made that great leaping catch, and yes, that's a rewatch game. So if you haven't watched it yet, you'll see what I'm about to say because this is one of my vivid memories from that game. After Andy made the great play on Roland, robbing of him the home run of the sixth inning, the Mets actually were given a gift by Scott Rowland the following inning. He committed a bad error, and the Mets had a runner on third and less than two outs, and the two hitters coming up were Jose Valentin and Andy Chavez. And Andy popped up in the infield. This is by memory, because I have not rewatched this game yet. And Jose Valentin, I think, struck out on a pitch that was bounced. And both guys had a chance to drive the run, and I think in Valentin's case, it was with one out. So unfortunately, despite having a really good season in 2006, I kind of forget it. I think more about that moment in game seven against St. Louis. Much like Ricky Henderson, Jose Valentin comes back in 2007. His batting average dips, his pop dips. He really looked like a completely lost baseball player. And then finally, in the middle of June of that season, the New York Mets say, I think it's time to go. And they release him. Or did he finish the season and get hurt? I don't even remember. Bottom line is he barely played and he was done. And that was it. And that was Jose Valentin's time with the New York Mets. So much like Ricky Henderson, he had the one really big year, comes back for a second year, and doesn't even get through the season. And turns out to be a disaster. So those are the two kind of honorable mentions, close but no cigar examples of one-hit wonders. But I have compiled a list, a very, very big list of one-hit wonders. You ready to go through it, Pete? You're very, you're, you're very excited right now? I, I, I'm i waiting. Now, I, I have one name that sticks out right off the bat, and I'm curious to see if he makes a list because he was with the team for one year, but not the full year. But would that count? Oh, yes, because, and you'll see it based on this, there's a lot of guys that fit that. There's a lot of guys that came here, and for whatever reason, some of it's trade, some of it's injuries, some of it's just various things faded away and actually never even completed a season. Uh, What we'll do is I'll go through all these names and at the end of it, we'll decide on the greatest one hit wonder in the history of the New York Mets. And quite frankly, I don't think it's going to be close after you hear all the names. I think there's one clear winner, but let's start off with a guy who in 2013, as the Mets were struggling, trying to find their way, came out of absolute nowhere and had a tremendous season for the New York Mets. And it's funny, uh, Pete, 
he fits what you were just describing. This guy I'm about to mention didn't even finish the season with the New York Mets that season. He signed with the Mets at age 35 years old after bouncing around the league and also being suspended for steroids. And that guy is Marlon Byrd. Marlon Byrd had his best season as a New York Met in 2013. He played 117 games before being traded. He hit 285. He hit 21 home runs. He drove in 71 runs. He had an 848 OPS. And the debate at the time, because the Mets stunk in 2013. I like to say between 2009 and 2014, we had a period of five years where it was basically the same crap every single year. Now, sometimes we would get off to good starts, then fall apart. Sometimes we would just be done by the middle of June. But every single season sort of kind of runs together in my memory as just shitty seasons. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it comes down to. I wonder if I was a kid in 2009 to 2013, if I would remember it more uniquely than I do. But the bottom line is the Mets ended up finishing 74 and 88 that season. And Marlon Byrd was one of their best players. Uh, this happened to be one of those crappy seasons where the Mets were never really in it. They were basically under 500 the entire season. So there was no kind of move. There was no tease. There was no, hey, we're pretty good. I think it was pretty obvious most of the season that this was just a team going nowhere. They were 10 and 15 in April. They were 12 and 15 in May. So you do the math. They were out of it. And so I remember we all viewed Marlon Byrd as a guy who at 34 years old is having this great season, but what are we doing? Like, are we going to keep him? And it was actually a debate amongst Met fans. Maybe we should keep Marlon Byrd. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we found something with him. And it was a friend of mine who used to text me all the time after Marlon Byrd would get big hits and say, do you feel dirty? And I'd say, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, he's a cheat. And I said, well, but you think he's cheating again? You think he did steroids, got caught, and now is doing it again? By the way, spoiler alert, we would later find out that he was. He ended up getting busted for steroids a second time. But that always bothered me. I was arguing with him back then, saying, he's not cheating. There's no way. you, Boy, how, how out of it was I? But the one thing I was steadfast on was, we're not good. He's 34. We have to trade him. Like, there's no way we could just ride it out with Marlon Bird. There's no way. And the Mets ultimately made the decision to part ways with Marlon Bird. They actually traded him to the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, before the trade deadline, where he went to Pittsburgh and continued to play well. That was it, though, by the way. After his time in Pittsburgh and then his subsequent steroid suspension, he would bounce around the league and never perform the same way. I remember what we got from Marlon Bird. We traded him to Pittsburgh for two players, Dilson Herrera and Vic Black. Flick Bl Vic Black was a relief pitcher. Couldn't throw strikes. Dilson Herrera, we would talk ourselves into being the future second baseman of the New York Mets. He was the guy for multiple years. There are certain prospects that will always live in our mind as we thought he was going to be great. We thought he was going to be good. We thought we would look back at the Marlon Bird trade and say that was a good one. Eventually, the Mets would trade Dilson Herrera a few years later before the trade deadline for Jay Bruce. So the Dilson Herrera career never went anywhere. But Marlon Bird was here for 117 games, Pete, and can't complain. He was a damn good Met, and then they were able to cash out and try to trade prospects for him. Yeah, I remember him just being somebody that, like, the power he brought with him was, was exciting. I feel like he had some really clutch hits some big home runs, and I do remember the fact that it's like, oh, we want to keep this guy forever, but the reality is that was never going to happen. But yeah, I do met Marlon Bird definitely in a rough stretch with someone who stuck out in a, in a positive way. I, I certainly hope that in 2024, we aren't talking about the guys we recently bought having really good years that we're then going to turn around and trade. Actually, we had a guy like that this past season in 2023, and that was Tommy Pham. I mean, think about that. Tommy Pham, in a lot of ways, is similar to Marlon Bird as a one-hit wonder in that you sign Tommy Pham, you sign Marlon Bird, you don't have huge expectations, and both guys, more so Bird. Bird obviously had a better season if you're comparing it to Pham's 23, but Tommy Pham ended up having a really good season for the Mets, 
to the point where when they fell out of it, they obviously traded him. Now, the jury's out on what that trade's going to look like in terms of if the young pitcher they got back turns into anything. But I think if we do this updated Rico Bronio one-hit one hit wonder in 10 years, Tommy Pham may be mentioned. But I think it's so recent we kind of throw him away. But it is sort of similar. Sign a guy, get a lot of production, your season goes nowhere, you trade them away. That is one-hit wonder number one. Here's another guy, and this is recent as well. Though Marlon Byrd, 2013, I guess, isn't that recent. It's a decade ago. But that's that's my age, I guess, telling me. But 2021 is recent, right? That's only a few years ago. Aaron Loop put together one of the great <laughs> reliever seasons you will ever see from a New York Met. Let's not forget what Aaron Loop did in 2021. And I think it's even more impressive when you pull up Aaron Loop's page on Baseball Reference and you see everything he's done at the major league level since 2012. And he's had some productive seasons, no question. But he's a career 3.43 ERA kind of guy. And when the Mets let him go after one year to Anaheim, he had a 3.8 ERA and then a 6.1 ERA. The ERA that Aaron Loop had for the Mets in 2021. So this is his career Mets ERA. Granted, it's only 56 innings because he was a loogie, as you call it. A guy coming in to just get a lefty out. Aaron Loop had a 0.95 ERA. So depending on innings qualifications, Aaron Loop has one of the lowest ERAs in the history of the New York Mets. He put together an incredible season in 2021. Uh, Unfortunately, the team is remembered as collapsing. The team is remembered as falling apart. We spent most of the season in first place. This was the real first year of Steve Cohen, if you think about it. And the Mets led that mediocre National League East for most of the season before completely crumbling. Jacob deGrom gets hurt. They make the trade for Javier Baez. The team falls apart. Aaron Loop was one of the constants, and he was a likable Met, too. He was drinking his Bush beer after games, and he got righties out as well. You know, you think of him as just a guy to come in and get left-handers out. And while he did a lot of that, when he was asked to cross over and get right-handers out, he did a really good job against them, too. Aaron Loop was a damn good Met, but when he was a free agent after his one year here, we all agreed, like to bring him back, but there's no way he's ever going to do this again. And as we've seen from his time in Anaheim, there was no way he was ever going to do it again. So one good year for Aaron Loop, can't argue with it, 0.95 ERA. It can't get much better than that. Oh, now, I remember the Bush beer, but there was a, a moment, and I'm, I'm drawn a blank on who... I think it was his reliever buddy that came in for like a even shorter spur, like came up for like a month or two and they were just killing it. And loop was the bush. And I think someone else was like Miller. Do do who was the other pitcher that was with him? I, cause I remember a press conference of them side by side. with two different beers. Do you recall? I don't remember now. No, I, I have to look that I'm, up. I'm looking it up. I'll find it out. All right. <laughs> all over it. <laughs> I tell you, if we're picking the best of the one-hit wonders and we're doing this by stats, it's going to be very tough to argue Aaron Loop. It's tough to, I know it's bullpen arms, ERAs are misleading. I get all that, but 0.95 ERA is not bad. Let's go back a little bit further. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's go back all the way to 1995. 1995 was a surprisingly good year for the Mets because... Remember, they were coming off of the strike of 1994. And before that, 1993, where they lost 103 games, 1995 was the year that began late because of the work stoppage. And the Mets ended up finishing the season very strong and finishing in second place. The Mets had a guy on that 1995 team, very similar to Marlon Byrd, in that he didn't even finish the season with the New York Mets, because even though it was a good season moving in the right direction, the Mets were not in a pennant race in 1995. 
So if you're getting a really productive year out of somebody, you may as well trade them at the trade deadline. But because of the work stoppage, because of the strike, because of the lockout, this guy signed in April because that was the offseason. That was the MLB free agent frenzy. We sort of had that a couple of years ago after the lockout. But this one was even more extreme because I think that the injunction that brought baseball back and eliminated the replacement players, I think it was like March 31st or April 1st. And then they had the run to spring training, the run to start the season. So all these free agent signings were occurring in April. And this guy, Brett Butler, signed on April 11th. By the middle of August, he was actually traded back to the Los Angeles Dodgers, the team he left. Brett Butler had a damn good year in 1995. He was 38 years old, so he was well at the end of his major league career. But in the 90 games he played for the Mets, he hit 311. 311. He also went out and stole 21 bases. And he played, I guess, a halfway decent center field. My memory tells me he played a halfway decent center field. Though it's funny, I remember, I think it was, I'm trying to think if it was before he came to the Mets or after he came to the Mets. But he was facing the Mets, and Todd Hundley hit a ball to center field that was a home run. And Brett Butler made one of the great catches you'll ever see. He climbed the fence, kind of hung on to the wall, and took a home run back against Todd Hundley. And because he played for the Dodgers before he came to the Mets and after he came to the Mets, I couldn't tell you what year it was. My gut kind of tells me it was after that it probably happened during that 1996 season, but I, I very much could be wrong about that. But Brett Butler was a Dodger, and he was a good Dodger. He was known for his bunting. He was known for his speed. And for the Mets, in 90 games, he went out at 311 and got on base 38% of the time, and then they traded him in August, back to the Dodgers for two guys that I don't know who they are, Scott Hunter and Dwight Mattis. So that trade did not work out. They didn't trade him back to the Dodgers and get like a young prospect named Raul Mondesi or anything like that. Though I think Mondesi won the rookie of the year that year. Okay, Todd Hollinsworth or whoever other prospect they had that would have panned out more than Scott Hunter and Dwight Mattis. But good year. I mean, can't argue with 311, 773 OPS. So Marlon Bird, Brett Butler, they have it in common. Old outfielders come to the Mets in crappy seasons, have good years, and they get traded away at the trade deadline. I, I do remember Brett Butler, but again, he was a flash to pan for me. It wasn't very significant. Didn't feel very significant, at least. By the way, found the guy. Who was the guy? And I was right. It was a Miller, Miller Light. Do you, I don't know if you can see this picture. I cannot see the picture. Is? I apologize. Pete is trying to show me a picture through his phone. It's I can't see. Anthony Banda. Anthony who? Banda. Anthony Banda. Oh my god. I know another one one day wonder. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. That's another Rico. Guys <laughs> who spent less than ten days on the New York Mets. We examine. <laughs> I, I give you another guy. He was here for one year. We all remember him as a major leaguer. We forget he was on the New York Mets. And unfortunately, he tragically passed away. And that was Corey Lytle. Corey Lytle, one of the guys who played for both the Mets and the Yankees. Corey Lytle came up as a Met. He was a 25-year-old in 1997 when he was called up. And he was working out of the bullpen that year in 97 and pitched to a 3-5-3 ERA. Pitched very, very well. And the reason that the Mets lost him is because he was actually taken in the expansion draft by the Arizona Diamondbacks. Never actually pitched for the Diamondbacks. Ended up being traded to the Tampa Bay Rays. Bounced around baseball. Had some really good years with Oakland, with Philadelphia. Ended up with the Yankees. And then tragically, after his time with the Yankees, passed away in that airplane accident in New York City right after the Yankees got eliminated in 2006. And right after, he had called in to Mike and the Mad Dog and had an argument on the air about the team and the way he had pitched. But he was a Met before he had bounced around the league and was a pretty good Met back in 1997, Corey Lytle. Here's another guy who I think when we think of his time as a Met, it's negative. Even though when I give you the numbers about what this guy did, you would say, hey, he was pretty good. But I think when I mention this name, you think of things that are not related 
to going out for the Mets, making 33 starts and throwing 206 innings to a 3.57 ERA. Because those numbers right there, just leave it at that. We would die for that in 2024 from anybody in this rotation. 33 starts, 206 innings, and a 3.57 ERA. I get it, 3.57, maybe you want it lower. 33 starts, 206 innings. There is not going to be a guy on the Mets even close to 206 innings in 2024. So I give you those innings, and I tell you that you don't think of him any positive light. You think of him for two other reasons. You think of him being traded away, which he was after his one year with the Mets, and for what the Mets got back. And then the other thing you may think about is that the Mets offseason that year had very high expectations and he was the prize and that was a disappointment now with all those hints I'll tell you the guy's name Kevin Apier Kevin Apier had a long distinguished career with the Kansas City Royals and before that the Oakland A's but going into the offseason of 2000 into 2001 there were two main focuses there was can the Mets sign Alex Rodriguez which they did not and can they retain Mike Hampton which they did not. The Yankees, on the other hand, signed Mike Mussina. The Mets signed Kevin Apier. And Kevin Apier signed, I think it was like a four-year, $44 million contract. And it was met with disappointment because Kevin Apier was this average major league pitcher who had some good years, but his best season had occurred a decade earlier. And they didn't get A-Rod and they didn't get Mike Hampton. Well. Kevin Apier, like I said, 11 and 10, 3570 RA. He made 33 starts. You cannot argue with what Kevin Apier did. There's, there was no expectation from Apier that would have been far different than what he did. In fact, if you take his year with the Mets and you put it up with the rest of his major league career, it comes in as like his third or fourth best year he had as a major league. And this is a guy who pitched 16 years in the majors. So it was not a bad year, but he wasn't Mike Hampton. And obviously he wasn't a rod different position during the off season. The Mets traded him. And that's where we all remember who they got for him, which was Mo Vaughn, Kevin Apier from Mo Vaughn one for one Apier would pitch two more seasons in Anaheim before he ended his career back in Kansas city. And Mo Vaughn had his time with the Mets, which featured a couple of bombing home runs. And then a lot of injuries and his career ending. Kevin Apier, good Met for one year. I'm sorry, he was a good Met. Went out there, made every damn start, and pitched to a three and a half ERA. I give him a round of applause, even though no one else gives him respect. Good Met, Kevin Apier. Uh, I, the Mo Vaughn thing, though, is, is tragic. That was the that might may be one of the worst moves in Mets history. So here's why I would disagree with you. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to do it. Because there's so many more that are worse than him? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> because, like, Kevin Apier, four years, $44 million, He ended up having one more decent season. Mo Vaughn, in his first year with the Mets, really his only year with the Mets where he was productive, uh, was good in 2002. Like, so initially when that trade was made, Apier pretty much did the same thing in Anaheim. And Mo Vaughn came over and hit 260, hit 26 home runs, and had an 800 OPS. It's not bad. I'm not saying it's what he was in 1995. I'm not saying it was what he was in Anaheim. It's not even close. This is a guy who would hit 40 home runs and drive in 120 runs, but he was a somewhat productive player. And then in 2003, he was done. Like, he barely played, and then his career was over. Uh, it was a bad trade. Like, I'm not trying to tell you it was an amazing trade, but. There's been worse. <laughs> Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi. I don't know. There's just a few that just jump out at you. Yeah. I, I guess you're right. Those were pretty much sick. They, they were significant. Going back to that 2006 season, we mentioned Jose Valentin. There's actually two more guys from that 2006 team who only spent one year with the New York Mets. This is a guy who I thought had a chance to be a very popular New York Met. I thought in the early going he was. And the guy I'm talking about was Xavier Nady. Is that the guy you were thinking about, Pete? Exactly the guy. Exactly the guy. Because he that. was my boy. That was your, yeah, well, 
you fell in love with him early for the first uh, half of the season in 2006? 100%. And, like, his numbers aren't going to stick out. You're going to read off his numbers. You're not going to be like, oh, my God, this guy's like a, you know, could have been a Hall of Famer with the Mets. No, 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 nothing like that. But he just was a good clutch player. And then the Dwayne or Sanchez thing happened, which destroyed us. That That's the problem. And that's where, when you look at Nady's time with the Mets, he actually only ended up playing 75 games here. His numbers are solid, by the way. 264, 813 OPS, 14 home runs, mostly playing right field. And he was 27 years old at the time. And you weren't the only one. It felt early in 06 that Met fans liked him. They had acquired him during the previous offseason from Mike Cameron, who clearly didn't have a role here anymore after the Carlos Beltran trade. And then they had that collision in the prior season. So it was Mike Cameron for Xavier and And I think what bothers me about Nady's tenure ending is that it's very different than what we talked about with guys like Marlon Byrd and guys like um, Brett Butler in that the Mets were having a great year. They didn't trade Xavier Nady for prospects. They had an incident, as you alluded to, with Dwaner Sanchez getting into a car accident. He was actually in a taxi because he wanted to go out and get food one night in Florida. Got into a taxi, taxi accident, Dwaner's out for the season. And the Mets responded by doing something that I hate. And that is taking a guy off your major league roster in attempting to make a deal at the deadline. I hate that. And they're rare. They're going to become more common now because of all the playoff teams, because more teams make the postseason and there are going to be multiple teams that think they can make it. So I think these kinds of trades are actually going to occur more. But back in the day, they never happened. There was one between the Red Sox and the A's years ago, and it it bothered me when it happened. The Oakland A's are going for it. They trade for John Lester. That's great. They had to give up Yoannis Cespedes, who was their cleanup hitter at the time, and that never made sense to me. So here are the Mets needing bullpen help. So they targeted Roberto Hernandez from the Pittsburgh Pirates, and they have to trade Xavier Nady for Roberto Hernandez and Oliver Perez, who turned out to be the more impactful player in that trade. So what always bothered me about that was I just want to trade prospects when I'm going for it. And it's funny this off season, I've talked about not wanting to trade prospects, but when I'm sitting there at the trade deadline and I'm trying to win a world championship, that's what I want to move. I don't want to move guys off my major league team. And I can't tell you that things would have worked out differently in 2006. Who the hell knows? Uh, Sean green is in a Met. Think about that. Sean Green isn't playing right field. Xavier Nady is. Like, there's a lot of things that would have played out differently. Maybe you don't get Oliver Perez, so someone else is starting uh, game seven of the NLCS. And say what you want about Ali P and his tenure here. Oliver Perez pitched damn well in game seven of that 06 season, 06 series. I don't know how things play out differently, but Xavier Nady has this weird history with the Mets and that there's regret. He should have been here for that postseason run, and who knows what happens. Yeah, I mean, I just remember seeing that ball in right field that Sean Green just has difficulty with. And I'm like, Xavier Nady would have been Xavier Spezio hit that ball, too. Yep. What a, I hate that goatee. What a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Another guy that was on that 06 team, except he played the entire season for the Mets, was a key arm in that bullpen, Chad Bradford. The side-arming right-hander pitched in 70 games, had a 2.9 ERA, made seven appearances during the postseason that year, didn't give up a run. Five and two-thirds scoreless innings for Chad Bradford. He was the specialist that Willie Randolph would go to to get a tough right-hander out, and he did it every time. Chad Bradford had a great season in 2006, but you know we talked about this with Aaron Loop. Sometimes with relievers, you get that one great year, and you say, all right, I'm good. Let's move on. The New York Mets decided to move on after his really good year in 2006. And if you look at the rest of his career, the Mets made a bad decision because Chad Bradford was good in 2007 with the Orioles. He was good in 2008 with the Orioles. He was good in 2008 when he was traded to Tampa Bay. He was a good relief pitcher. And as you may remember, in 07 and 08, the Met bullpen let them down. So who knows? Maybe the collapses. In 07 and 08 are different if Chad Bradford sticks around. But he was here for one season in 2006 as 31 years old, and he put together a really, really good season. Here's another guy. In fact, this guy 
His last season in the major leagues was his one season with the New York Mets. This is a guy who is a nine-time All-Star. This is a guy who is a five-time Silver Slugger Award winner. This is a guy that's won a batting title. And this is a guy that finished his career with 509 home runs. Who am I talking about, Pete? Gary Sheffield. Gary Sheffield. That's right. His one year with the Mets wasn't bad. Again, it was in that grouping of years where the Mets were terrible. So it all kind of mishes together, mushes together. But he played 100 games for the Mets in 2009, hit 10 home runs, 276, 823 OPS. I think the only thing we're going to remember him for is that he hit his 500th home run. The Mets haven't had a lot of guys hit 500 home runs. In fact, Gary Sheffield is the only guy who hit his 500th home run as a New York Met. So it's a good year, but he's not winning this competition. At the end of this podcast, when we declare the greatest one-hit wonder in the history of the New York Mets, unfortunately, Gary Sheffield is not winning that award. But I'll tell you one guy who deserves consideration, Pete, and you're not going to like it. The audience is not going to like it. Because when I say his name, you won't have positive memories. But if I told you this guy played 47 games for the Mets, had an 886 OPS, hit nine home runs in 47 games with a 299 average, you'd say, that's pretty productive. If I said that all happened after the trade deadline, you'd say, that seems like a great trade. It seems like you hit it when you made that trade. But then when I start to attach names to it, you're not going to be happy. Who am I talking about, Pete? You have no idea? I'm blanking. I want it's recent. If that makes it easy, it's very recent. It's so it's before 2015. No, very recent. Recent means it's happened recently, not before 2015. Sorry, it's later. (laughs) Um, so 2022 playoff run. No, no, I don't. Daniel Vogelback did not put up those numbers. He also spent multiple years with us. I got to be honest, I went to like one Uribe, but I think he had two tenures with us, right? uh... Yeah, Juan Uribe um, was a guy who, if I mentioned his name to you, though, you'd be pretty happy. I don't think anyone has a negative feeling towards Juan Uribe. He was almost like our savior when the Mets acquired him. And no, he only had one tenure here. Kelly Johnson's the guy who had multiple tenures here. But it's not Juan Uribe, it's Javier Baez. Uh, Javier Baez was a good Met when the Mets traded for him. He was very, very productive, but he's going to be remembered for a couple of things that aren't positive, and number one is going to be the thumbs down. That's going to be the top thing. So despite coming over here and putting up probably the best production of his major league career when you look at what he's done since and even what he did before that, uh, there's no Met fan that's going to have a positive feeling towards him because, A, the team didn't win. So despite him being really productive in those 47 games, it didn't spark the Mets to victories. And number two, they gave up Pete Crow Armstrong. And if Pete Crow Armstrong turns out to be a star, when we talk about bad trades in Met history, that's going to be one of them. It's unfortunate because Juan Uribe, and I'm glad you brought up his name, Pete, his numbers with the Mets were not that great in 2015. But if I say his name, we'll all think positively about him. Like, yeah, Juan Uribe. We were so happy when we traded for him. Juan Uribe, part of a team that got sparked, went on a run, and got to the World Series. Javier Baez was a hell of a lot more productive than a guy like Juan Uribe, but the team didn't win. And the team got defined for rebelling against Met fans. And then he was gone. And clearly the Mets didn't make a mistake in doing that because Javier Baez in Detroit has been Like, calling him a disaster would be an understatement. He has been awful. I I was trying to think of a different word. I mean, awful is just a basic word. (laughs) You should have done it in Joe Bringer's voice. What a disaster. What a freaking Thank God we didn't sign this guy. Let me just say this. (laughs) I will tell you, Joe did tell me, um, after Bias had that year in 2021, we're not doing the show anymore together, but we talk. We're friends. And I remember Joe saying to me on the phone, I I don't know why this is so vivid to me. I know where I was driving 
when Joe and I were on the phone, I had him on the speakerphone, and he made this comment to me. I was driving right near uh, SUNY Purchase, and Joe said, I got to tell you, bro, I would trade Lindor and keep my ass. That's just me. That's just me. And I think I was like, yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, that would not have I, worked out. Can I tell you the one moment about Javi Baez that I do appreciate, though? Yes. Um, and I think this was during that thumbs down thing was when he lost his his earring. So I feel yes. like we got it. I feel like we got revenge on him. That <laughs> was funny. Remember, everybody, I think Sandy Alderson was out there looking for the earring, too. Like, they, were, the they, earring? Were call, they, were, they were calling for a freaking a diamond <laughs> earring, bro. If only I had those problems. Oh, yes. Unfortunately for Javi Baez, uh, we will only remember the bad stuff, despite 299, 886, nine home runs, 22 RBIs. Honorable mention for Latroy Hawkins. He was also on that 2013 team. That we talked about earlier with Marlon Byrd. Latroy Hawkins appeared in 72 games and pitched to a 2.93 ERA. Also, honorable mention of John Buck. John Buck was the catcher, uh, the forgotten guy received back in the R.A. Dickey trade. Now, John Buck did not have good career numbers for the Mets in the one year he was here, but he had a massive April. And that's why I'm bringing him up because he had nine home runs in the month of April. And we had briefly fallen in love with John Buck, thinking, can you believe this? Forget Noah Syndergaard. Forget Travis Darno. We got John Buck. And then it all flamed out. The other guy, and I want you to tell me if this qualifies. The answer is going to be no, but I wanted to mention him. And I didn't want to mention him earlier in the whole Ricky Henderson, Jose Valentin light. And the guy I'm talking about is Mike Jacobs. The reason I mention that is Mike Jacobs was called up in 2005 and in a brief, brief period of time, put up insane numbers. The story about Mike Jacobs is that he got called up, hit a home run, and Pedro Martinez was the one who put his foot down and said, you can't send this kid back. How could you send him back down? He's hitting a ton. He ended up hitting 310 with a 1,000 OPS in 30 games and hit 11 home runs in 100 at-bats, which is a stupid pace. That's like a 55 home run a year pace. At the end of the season, the Mets then traded Mike Jacobs to the Florida Marlins for Carlos Delgado, clearly a trade we would not regret. So off the top, you'd say, okay, what's the problem? I don't know if you remember, but in 2010, years later, after Jacobs had that burst onto the scene, the Mets actually signed him. They brought him back, and he played 10 games for the Mets, was in the minor leagues, and then got purchased by the Toronto Blue Jays. So he played 10 games five years later in 2010. I don't know if anybody remembers it. It was very nondescript. He wasn't productive at all. So is he a one-hit wonder? He kind of only really had the one year here. Do we count the seven games he played in 2010? Let me, let me put this in a musical term, right? There's plenty of bands out there that have had one hit. They may eventually throw out a, a, a single a few years later, but no one remembers that. Yes. So they're still considered one-hit wonders. So I think Mike Jacobs follows that, that to a T. One other guy I want to give an honorable mention to is Omir Santos. Omir Santos would not live in our memory if not for being involved in a moment that I think we all remember, which is the Omir Santos game in Boston against the Red Sox. Because that year in 2009, like his numbers were nothing to write home about. He played 96 games. He had 260. He had a 688 OPS. He had seven home runs. But I, I need to mention him because Met history can't be written without at least a sentence about Omir Santos. Put it this way. Uh, I wrote a book, and that book is coming out. It e even has a book date that I can announce right now on when my book is coming out. And I could even give you a title. Should I give all that information out right now? Because I'm probably going to have to be a whore at some point in trying to sell my book. Like, I'm going to have you, to do that like every other dopey author, right? You're breaking news. This is, a, this is the headline to the podcast, <laughs> breaking news in this episode. Well, you know what? I'll save the name of the book for another episode. I'll just give you the date it's coming out. is April 3rd, 2024. It is coming out. It has been published. It's done. 
And basically the concept of the book is I picked my 81, I wouldn't say favorite Met games because there's a lot of losses in there, most memorable Met games that I have scored over the 35 to 30 plus years I've been scoring Mets games. So I took the 80 most memorable games and not only did I write about the game, I wrote about where I was in my life. It's almost like an autobiography through the Mets, as crazy as that sounds. And the Omir Santos game needed to be in the book. I got the Subway World Series. I got World Series games, playoff games, Johan's no-hitter, crazy opening days. But that Omir Santos game was like, man, that's got to be in the book. But I'll tell you a lot more about the book. Maybe we'll have an entire episode all about the book that comes out on April 3rd, 2024. Another guy I want to mention is Sean Dunstan. Sean Dunstan was acquired at the deadline in 1999. He played 42 games that year and hit 344. So right off the top, I mean, how could you argue with that? But that's not why I mentioned Sean Dunstan. I mentioned Sean Dunstan as one of the great one-year Mets because of the at-bat he had against the Braves in game five of the NLCS that season, the Robin Ventura Grand Slam single game. He had an at-bat. That game is in the book, too, by the way. That game's in the book. That game, you're damn right, that game's in the book. The, the, the Robin Ventura Grand Slam. Basically, every Met playoff game I've scored. Not every of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them are in this book, as you could imagine. But Sean Dunstan had the at-bat that set up the Ventura Grand Slamming single. Set it up. He had this long at-bat where he kept fouling pitch after pitch after pitch after pitch, and then finally hit a ground ball to right center field up the middle for a base hit. And it set up the inning. So for that at-bat, for the 344, Sean Dunstan is up there. There's one guy left. And the one guy left is the winner. I'm, we could try to debate it. I mean, maybe Pete's going to debate it. I have no idea. But there is only one person that can fit the bill on this. And obviously, the names I've gone through all kind of fit my era of watching Met baseball. So again, I always apologize if there was a guy from the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. My research could have us talk about him, but I didn't remember it. And I think the best way to do this is I got to see him pitch. I'm giving you my opinion. But this is the answer. And I'll give Pete a chance to say it's not the answer, but it is the answer. The greatest one-year wonder in the history of the New York Mets occurred in the year 2000. It occurred with a guy who went out and made 33 starts. His first few couldn't throw a strike, but then he put it all together and ended up throwing 217 innings, finishing with a 3-1-4 ERA. But more than that, we remember him for that image of game five of the 2000 NLCS as he stared out the center field as Timo Perez jumped into the air. And then Mike Piazza in his big hulking arms grabbed this diminutive man into his arms, picked him up to the sky. And even though he left us after one season, he left us for the school systems of Denver, Colorado. Let us all acknowledge Mike Hampton as the greatest one-year Met in the history of the franchise. You don't have to like him. You don't have to respect him. You can call him a liar. You may still be bitter about the school system story we were given during that offseason. But Mike Hampton, as a one-year Met, it's tough to beat that. NLCS MVP, made every start. Team got to the World Series. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Jefferson Drew Martinez Hampton. I think I might go with Aaron Loop on this one. <laughs> Come on. No, no, no. You're right. The, the guy was a stud. Um, I think it's more bitter. The reason why Mets fans are are still don't like him is we're bitter. Like we, we thought he could be here for a long time and should be here for a long time. And that season was special. And uh, I think that uh, that is the reason why people just don't like my, my candidate. I mean, that, that's, that's all it is. Well, but think about this, you know, and we've gone through so many different names and there's so many different circumstances to be here for one year and then be gone 
takes a weird circumstance. It, it takes us saying we don't want you back. It takes it happening in a bad year and then getting traded, which usually means you're not going to be that memorable to us because the team stunk. So to be successful and then leave after one year, it takes this kind of circumstance. And unfortunately for Mike Hampton, and I can't say it would have worked out if the Mets kept him because Hampton's career after he left the Mets, you know, it had its moments. Like I remember his first start he made for the Rockies after he left, he went out and pitched. I think it was like a complete game shutout or eight scoreless innings or whatever it was. But that year with Colorado, he was terrible. And the two years he pitched in Colorado, he was awful. He ended up resurrecting his career with Atlanta a few years later. But if you look at the rest of his career, he was never remotely close to what he was in 2000. So if the Mets had signed Mike Hampton to the contract the Rockies had given him, and granted he's not pitching at Coors Field, so maybe it's not as bad, we probably would have turned on because I don't think he would have lived up to that contract. So maybe we're better off that he left after after one year because I don't know if it would have really changed the fortunes of the New York Mets. And I don't think his career arc would have looked that much differently. It was that he went to Colorado. I mean, this we we figured there's 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 a reason why no pitchers go to Colorado. It's not well, because of the school system. <laughs> I I always joke that Mike Hampton didn't go for the school system. He went because he was a good hitting pitcher. And he said, screw my ERA. I want my batting average to go up. That's really what I care about. And by the way, it did. In Colorado, this is important. In Colorado, in his first season after leaving the New York Mets, here are his numbers. I'm not even kidding you. 291, seven home runs. 16 RBIs, 891 OPS. (laughs) Now, for perspective, in his year with the Mets, he did hit 274, but he didn't hit any home runs, and he only had a 586 OPS. He goes to Colorado. He's he's essentially Shohei Otani. But, yeah, it didn't work out with Mike Hampton, uh, unfortunately. It was not a long-term Met, but he is, to me, Clearly the greatest one-year Met this franchise has ever seen. If there is anybody we forgot or anybody we disrespected, you are more than welcome to email us, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. But I think we have it covered. Over the last 30 years, all of your one-year New York Mets. I want to congratulate Mike Hampton on being the best of the best. We hope everybody is enjoying their holiday. Ah, can't wait for this brand new year, 2024, where we'll have new one-year Mets to talk about. Luis Severino may join that list in a bunch of years. But all jokes aside, have a very happy holiday. We appreciate you listening and downloading another edition of Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.